0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
1: On Monday this week, it was announced that former New South Wales police officer Roger Rogerson had died in jail at the age of 83 while serving out a life sentence for murder. Former Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson was physically brave, almost fearless. He was the kind of police officer who could coolly walk onto the scene of an armed robbery and shoot out the tyres of the getaway car. He was, at the peak of his career, the most decorated officer in the New South Wales Police Force. Roger Rogerson was also deeply corrupt and a killer. He was closely involved in the heroin trade for years. In 1981, Rogerson summoned a heroin dealer named Warren Lanfranchi to a meeting in the back streets of Sydney. Lanfranchi had robbed one of his allies in the drug trade, and so Rogerson shot Lanfranchi dead in the street in broad daylight. In the inquest that followed, Rogerson was exonerated. Then in 1984, Roger Rogerson was involved in the attempted murder of a fellow police officer, Michael Drury, who was about to give crucial evidence in a drug case. Roger Rogerson was eventually drummed out of the New South Wales Police Force. And in his later years, it seems he offered his services as a hitman to the Sydney underworld. And in 2016, he and another former detective were sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of an ICE dealer named Jamie Gow. A few years ago, I invited Jack Hoisted on the show to take us through The Life and Times of Roger Rogerson. Jack is a true crime writer, TV producer, and a columnist for The Australian, where he blogs under the name of Jack the Insider, and he encountered Roger Rogerson face-to-face when he interviewed him for a TV program. Welcome back, Jack. G'day, Richard. You were the writer-producer for the series Tough Nuts, which showed on Foxtel, and as part of this, you had to line up an interview with Roger Rogerson, Jack. So
0: you were sitting there in the studio. Tell me what happened. Oh, well, look, I'd uh, organised for Roger to turn up and there were a couple of police officers came in. We didn't know that they were police officers until they introduced themselves, but I saw them get on their phones and, and talk to Roger and give them an outline of what the program was about. Were these serving police officers or ex-police officers? That no, came they in were ex-police the officers. They, they introduced themselves afterwards and, as it turned out, they became very good interview subjects of their own, but um, they just wanted in just to... Case the place, really. I guess uh, Roger was a bit worried that he might have found himself in the dock, so to speak, and, and being asked some really awkward questions, uh, which I hope I did. But <laughs> but he realised that it was a genuine television production and he wasn't being sorted out. Um, and that's how cautious he was. And, and what happened when the man himself arrived? Oh, look, uh, Roger shuffled in. He was in pretty good shape. He, he always dressed... Uh, sort of casually and well and, and kind of banks down sort of uh, understated way.
1: Yeah, it was, like, it was always like, a, it was always like a, a very crisply ironed polycotton shirt from Lowe's. That was the look, wasn't it, a lot of the time? Uh, yeah, he was he was a force of nature in comfortable shoes, Richard. <laughs> okay. When you, when you interviewed him, did he have a kind of a dark
0: charisma to him or was he uh, one of those nondescript fellows? Look, just on meeting him, it was actually... A, Quite difficult not to like him, almost straight away. He was very friendly. He he was uh, a little uncomfortable at the prospect of being interviewed. But, you know, we sort of, we hit it off reasonably well straight away. He he was kind of a charming fellow and and you sort of took to him. So he was very friendly during the course of the interview. But what happened when you
1: started to grill him pretty closely about the disappearance of notorious hitman Christopher Dale Flannery, you know, whom he had been associated with in the past, Jack?
0: Yes, I knew that story very well. I mean, perhaps even too well. I, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time researching it. I'd attended a number of uh, inquiries, Royal Commissions, et cetera, and I had sort of you know, enormous files and uh, knowledge about his movements and so forth. So he perhaps sort of thought that we were going to do a sort of blazing study of this fellow Flannery, who was a very violent hitman, you know, almost sort of glorify him, but it was only when I got to ask him questions about particular details that he. St- Look, I wouldn't even describe it as evasion, but it was just a lack of, a sort of noticeable lack of comfort. But before that, he really just had his lines prepared. He was a consummate actor, always considered to be very, very good in front of a jury. So. He never really looked at it, ill at ease, but there were times when he gave me a second look when I'd ask him a question or two about, about Flannery's last movements, for example. Let's talk a bit about the community he grew up in. What part of Sydney is he from, Jack? Oh, a traditional working class area, uh, Bankstown in uh, Sydney's west. Paul Keating's home, of home ground, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, Yes, indeed. The War Brothers, Mark and Steve, are both Bankstown boys. And uh, back in those days, it would have been a much more
1: homogenous place uh, compared to the multicultural reality of Bankstown now, Jack, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. A very much a sort of a white-faced, anglicised community, fibro houses, etc., and quite a close community, you know, and that people would look after one another in, in that sense of neighbourhood or community, if you like. And was he one very
1: much one for that for, for his whole life, that kind of good neighbour, mow each other's lawn when the neighbours away, that kind of thing, Jack?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I spoke to a number of people who lived with him, and, in fact, where he grew up and where he lived when he was arrested famously in relation to the Gow murder, it was really just around the corner. He'd really not moved very far from his childhood to his adulthood. But talking to those people who lived around him, they were invariably... Spoke positively about him that, you know, if there was a woman who'd recently been widowed, he'd pop across the road and mow her lawns. Um, That knee injury that uh, led him to have this great hobble that people notice now, uh, I think there was a hip injury as well. But his knee injury, he got that from uh, helping one of his neighbours knock down the backyard shed, and uh, he fell from a from a metre up and, and totaled his knee. So, so he did all these things. He had that sense of community. It's a very strange thing, really, because he would go and help his neighbours out, and then he'd go off and do the most appalling things. In his mindset, was the world
1: made up of, there's one side of the line. And I think quite a few police think this way. On one side of the line, there's police and crooks, and the other side of the line is civilians. And you never, you never get involved. You don't hurt civilians. You keep civilians alone. You don't, you don't, you don't mess in that world too much. I
0: oh, certainly of that era. And Roger, you know, believed that. I mean, the the, the colloquialism is squareheads. You and I, as law-abiding citizens, Richard, mm. we are squareheads, right, right. uh, and they were in the game. So it was in, in the The police force that Roger Rogerson worked in, grew up in, learned from, there was a very close relationship with with criminals, often very on corrupt grounds. But if it wasn't corrupt, there was still, you know, part of your role of being a detective is to be in touch with with, uh, criminals on a daily basis. So there really was an us-and-them mentality, us being the police and the criminals and the them being... The Squareheads.
1: So when he joined the force, I presume in the 50s or 60s or thereabouts, his eyes would have been opened to this whole other world that uh, we Squareheads had never suspected existed then.
0: When he became a detective, and he became a detective as a very young police officer in his early 20s, he would have fallen in and did fall in with people like Ray Kelly, people like Fred Cray. And these were incredibly corrupt people. I mean... Kelly investigated a murder that we spoke about on your program one other time. This is the famous murder where McPherson and Stan Smith leave Len McPherson's wedding and go and shoot a criminal by the name of uh, uh, Robert Walker uh, on the streets of Randwick in the early 60s. Now, that murder was investigated by Ray Kelly with a young Roger Rogerson in tow. Now, it never came to anything... They would have known precisely who'd done it. But it was all part of the arrangement that Kelly had had that allowed Macpherson to get away with these things all the time. See, Macpherson was an informer for Kelly. He would go on to become an informer for Roger Rogerson. And with that came all of these privileges, including murder anyone you like, pretty much, with impunity there would be a quid pro quo. The quid pro quo was information about other criminals, about other armed robbers, about other murders. You co-authored a book a while back with a
1: former Victorian police officer named Dennis Ryan. Tell me the story he told you about his dealings with the New South Wales force of the 1960s, Jack.
0: Well, he's like a lot of Victorian police officers and detectives particularly. As soon as you mention the New South Wales police force, the eyes roll. You know, they've had some experience with uh, what was an endemically corrupt police force by the time Rogerson enters it in the 1960s. And in the early 60s, Dennis Ryan and a colleague, another detective, were going up to Sydney to extradite a prisoner who was wanted for murder. Uh, he'd been arrested in Sydney and he was wanted for murder in Melbourne. So Dennis and, uh, and his mate, they go to the old central police station and they walk in and they introduce themselves in the office of the police liaison officers, expecting them, and they start talking about all the logistics of how they're going to do the changeover and... Dennis tells them that they're due to fly out at 3 o'clock. And while this is going on, there's a terrible kerfuffle going on in the background. There are detectives running up and down the corridors and this sort sort of mayhem and chaos is going on. And the liaison officer gets up from his seat and says, excuse me just for one moment, and he dashes off as well and there's more... People, you know, board detectives running up and down the corridors and a sense of doors slamming and so forth. <laughs> and, uh, and then the liaison officer comes back and says, look, I'm very, very sorry, but we can't do this today. And, and Dennis says, well, what do you mean? He, he said, look, you know, I've got a flight out at 3 o'clock. Uh, it's booked. We can't really change it. And he said, look, we can't do it today. And they'd just arrested what had happened. Well, the reason for this kerfuffle is that they'd just arrested a well-known armed robber. And they're taking him back to his hideout where all his loot was, all his stolen money was. And and as the police liaison officer said, if I don't get up there, I'm not going to get my cut. So we can't extradite this prisoner for murder today. <laughs> because, because, you know, I've got... And if I don't turn up, I won't get my money. So, I mean... If you ever saw in the 60s a line of New South Wales police cars driving up, sirens blaring with detectives white-knuckled at, at the wheel, they could be on their way to a genuine emergency, a genuine incident, or they could be on their way to a carver. <laughs> And if you didn't get there in time, you missed out. Oh, dear God.
1: And, and what does a clean skin, proper, upright uh, police officer like Dennis Ryan make of all that
0: carry-on, Jack, anyway? Uh, just roll yeah. the eyes, and, and every uh. time you hear Dennis talk, Dennis actually thinks it goes all the way back to the Rum Rebellion. All right. It's not quite true. So this has been going on for a very, very long time. This had been f- going on for a very, very long very time. But basically, by the time... We get you mentioned the Lanfranchi murder before. By the time we get to the Lanfranchi murder, there had been four consecutive chief commissioners of police who were all corrupt. Each, four in a row, four in four a row. Four in a row. And this goes back to the thirties. So they were they're in the job for a very long time and as they prepared to retire they would anoint their successor who was also corrupt, and he would come in. There was no introspection, no external examination, and it just carried on the way it was. <laughs> Alan
1: Jones, the Sydney broadcaster, once defended Roger Rogerson and his old-school style of policing as a better system than the one we have now. What do you say to that,
0: Jack? Well, it's absolutely rubbish. I mean, it's just ridiculous stuff. Look, I've met a number of straight-up-and-down Former detectives uh, and very senior police officers from the New South Wales Police Force who refused to be part of this. And they're very intelligent, they're very fine investigators, but their careers were essentially stifled because they wouldn't accept money. Uh, and they were regarded as almost sort of lepers within the New South Wales Police Force because they wouldn't accept money. It was a terrible culture and. Thankfully, it has improved it has improved substantially since since the days of Rogerson and Kelly and Cray.
1: So Jack, once uh, the young Roger Rogerson joins the force, the New South Wales Police Force, how did he get noticed by these corrupt old cops like Ray Kelly?
0: Well, he was one very intelligent, and two, a great risk taker. And I mean in terms of personal risk. So if there was ever a very willing arrest to be made, Rogerson, as a young detective, would be the first one out of the blocks. He'd be the first one out of the car with a loaded shotgun. And he would just have no qualms, no concerns for his own personal safety. So this you know, in in the way that Ray Kelly was seen and the way he was portrayed in the media, Ray Kelly was seen as this sort of crime-fighting superhero and he would have seen Rogerson as being, you know, cut from the same cloth. Rogerson was decorated for foiling an armed robbery
1: by an armed criminal named Butchie Burns and his cohorts. Tell me about that day, Jack,
0: how that unfolded. Well, Butchie Burns and two other men arrived at a bank in a stolen car Police had received information that this armed robbery was going to take place and they waited for Burns in the bank and outside. And when Burns and his two associates pulled up, Rogerson was one of the first ones out of the car again, loaded shotgun, get out of the car, bang, get out of the car, bang. I mean, Burns was shot dead. They didn't get out of the car then. <laughs> He didn't have a chance.
1: He was shot dead in the car before he could even
0: get out of the car to commit the armed robbery then. That's right. So there are a number of police all around the area, but there were two in particular firing the shots, and one of them was Rogerson and another one was Arnie Tees. And a police officer that I've spoken to who was actually in the bank, he came out while the ambulance officers were taking the dead and the injured out of the car, and there's Tees and Rogerson screaming at each other, saying, I got the kill. No, no, I got the kill, arguing over who was going to get the bravery award. This is a
1: feature of Roger Rogerson. He can do that thing which very few people can do, kill someone in cold blood and seemingly not feel anything odd or strange about the experience, Jack. Normally you if you had been in that situation where you'd for whatever reason had to kill shoot and kill someone, you'd be a terrible mess. Even a terrible human being like Butchie Burns
0: or, or Warren mm. Lanfranchi, you'd be a shaking mess, wouldn't you? Well, this is a challenge that faces police officers on a daily basis today and when it does occur when a police officer fires a weapon in the line of duty and and, and either kills or wounds someone, it it causes great trauma more often than not to the police officer. Um, There are investigations and critical incident response teams who come along and sift through all the evidence and make sure that a police officer acted properly And and it does bring with it great trauma but Rogerson could shoot someone dead and Popped down for a Chinese meal afterwards. He he, he simply had no qualms whatsoever. In fact, with Lanfranchi and with Burns, they stood around talking about it afterwards. This was not something that troubled Rogerson at all. Roger Rogerson formed
1: a a close association with a violent criminal named Nettie Smith, Arthur Nettie Smith, and Nettie Smith, as been commonly recorded, was kind of like his main liaison point, I suppose, to the criminal world. Was there a genuine friendship between those
0: two men, Jack, to your mind? Well, Smith might have felt it, but I doubt that Rogerson did. To Rogerson, Smith was a means to an end, and that was he's a man who'll sell heroin, and give me a cut. He's a man who pulled armed robberies and give me a cut. So, as far as Rogerson thought, what, what he thought of Smith was that he knew he could trust him. So, that's important. But he didn't necessarily, I mean, he might have enjoyed his company and indeed they've been seen sort of skylarking around in, in clubs and pubs and so forth around Sydney. They weren't. But he would have trusted him. That's the most important thing that he wasn't going to tell stories on Rogerson. Which he ultimately did, but that was when the relationship had collapsed. But no real respect or or strong friendship. Smith was just a means to an end, like criminals had been to Rogerson before and and afterwards. Their association made Nettie Smith very rich very, very quickly in the
1: uh, early 1980s, and Nettie Smith formed an association with Warren Lanfranchi, uh, another violent criminal. What was it that Lanfranchi did that made Roger
0: mad? Well, there are two things. The first thing would have got him in a bit of trouble. Smith was working for a drug dealer in the eastern suburbs of Sydney by the name of Kenny Darley. And basically, Smith was Daly's bodyguard. And uh, Len Frenchy robbed him. Thereby now, robbing Roger Rogerson of his car. That's cart. right. Because, right. because well, Darley was, uh, was, was acting under the uh, the aegis, uh, under the protection of Rogerson and others and other police so that would have landed him in a lot of trouble. But as you said before, Lanfranchi was a very willing fellow, a very violent man, and he and two others were in a car. They were casing a place to do an armed robbery, and a, uh, a motorcycle traffic police officer tried to pull the vehicle over for speeding, and Lanfranchi was in uh, in the back seat, pulled a gun on this traffic cop and fired shots at him. You know, the traffic cop just pulled pulled back and and left the scene and that was that was the line that was crossed that yeah. was the reason he was killed
1: now tell me about that line in that day uh, at that time that's a, that was a very important line as far as police detectives like roger Rogerson
0: were concerned wasn't it you don't shoot mm. at a cop that's right so the Darley incident where he steals from a drug dealer under the protection of new south wales police that would have cost him money but shooting at a police officer that was going to cost him his life so in Rogerson's mind then Warren Lanfranchi was a marked man
1: and was brought to Dengar Place in Chippendale in inner-city Sydney. He was unarmed, Nettie Smith had made sure of that, and Rogerson shot
0: him dead. Were there any civilian witnesses to what had happened there, Jack? There were a ton of police, and the police evidence didn't waver, and that was that Lanfranchi had produced a weapon and Rogerson shot him lawfully. But that didn't happen. Nettie Smith it was his job to get Lanfranchi to that scene and ensure that he was not armed. He was also to ensure that Lanfranchi had the money with him because that was the, the basis of this, that Lanfranchi would meet Rogerson and he would pay him a sum of money, $20,000, and that basically he would pay the bribe and that would be, sort the matter out. And that's $20,000 in
1: 1981, dollars too, which is probably more like $100,000 in today's money, Jack. I, I was suppose. just going to say, it's a lot of yeah. money.
0: Uh, sure. So, And there were a number of police there. There were, there were 30 police in the vicinity, all waiting. There's a pub across the road. They were waiting in the pub. They were waiting in their cars and so forth. And their evidence didn't waver. But there were no other eyewitnesses besides Smith, who took off. But there were some people who'd heard the sounds of gunshots. So so they heard the first shot and then they, they estimated around nine seconds before the second shot was heard. What does that tell you, Jack? The first shot brings him down and the second shot is the coup de grace. And that nine-second period allows Rogerson to search the body, take the money and then execute him. What made Rogerson so brazen
1: i mean you know it's one thing to be a corrupt detective but executing your enemies in the street
0: in broad daylight like that what made him so confident he could get away with it jack there's a really complex answer to that question i suppose firstly he was the most decorated detective in the new south wales police force at the time of the Lam francis shooting so he's having honors bestowed upon him for this very violent behavior Sure, it was determined that he'd killed Butchie Burns in the in the line of duty and there were two other men as well. That's, every time he'd receive a medal or he'd receive an honour, he won the Peter Mitchell Award for the best detective of the year and so forth. So there was not only a sense that he was uh, going to be punished or ostracised or, or counselled by the New South Wales Police Force, his behaviour every time led to him being honoured more and more. And, and as funny as this seems, as funny as it seems today, he was honoured and respected in the media in the 1970s as a, a police officer who'd get the job done, who was willing to get his hands dirty with, with criminals and, uh, and smite ne'er do well. Oh you know, he was this, Dirty Harry was he? Right. Yeah, yeah that was the sort of sense and the media was sort of complicit in this. They were complicit in it with Kelly too. No one ever really crossed the line and started associating getting reports from criminals. They would simply just get all their information uh, from police either directly in in sort of formal media settings or through phone calls and information dripped and dropped to, to them uh, from people like Kelly and Rogerson. So Warren Len girlfriend, Sally Ann Huckstedt. She
1: went on national television to make allegations that her boyfriend, Warren Lanfranchi, had been assassinated by Rogerson, that Lanfranchi had said before he left the house that he was worried he was going to be gunned down by Rogerson. And this is the thing here, this is an interesting moment because it was the national TV media that were prepared to pursue this story as opposed to the local print journos.
0: I've been paying the police for 10 years because it's a way of life and, you have, and it's the way you survive When the police become judge, jury and
1: executioner then somebody has to speak. When she went on national television with Ray Martin to make these allegations, what did Roger Rogerson make of that, Jack?
0: Well from what we know of Rogerson he would have been absolutely furious and uh, I, I think in his mind once he saw that interview within about three or four seconds he would have determined Uh, that Sally Ann Huckstep would, uh, at one point, that he'd get to her, that he would basically see her off. But the first thing he had to deal with was a coronial inquest and uh, Sally Ann Huckstep was making all sorts of noise about it. And this, we talked about a complicit media before, now we've got a different approach to these things. This is the first time we're hearing the story from the other side and so Rogerson's account was not going to stand unless he had some evidence in support of him. And that evidence came from Nettie Smith, who perjured himself at the coronial inquest and allowed Rogerson off. So once Nettie had given that information at the inquest, letting
1: Rogerson off the hook, how how grateful was Roger Rogerson and his cohort for Nettie Smith's false evidence there?
0: So Rogerson and, and this other group of police officers knew immediately they could trust Smith. He was prepared to put himself on the line. And what they gave him was the green light, and the green light meant commit any crime you want, you'll never be pulled up for it, with one exception, and that is never fire at a police officer, never harm a police officer in any way, but everything else, open slather.
1: Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler.
0: You can find more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app.
1: So Jack, we were just saying there before the headlines that the upshot of Nettie Smith giving Corrupt evidence to the inquest into the shooting of Warren Lanfranchief on behalf of Roger Rogerson was that he was given the green lights, carte blanche to do whatever he liked when it came to crime in Sydney. What did this mean for the police? Would the police therefore just turn a blind eye or would they be more involved than that? Oh, they set
0: up armed robberies for him. What do you mean uh, set up? Neddy talks of a robbery of a jeweler. The jeweler himself wanted to be robbed, uh, insurance claim wise, and so forth. So he went to the police, and the police, in turn, went to Neddy Smith and said, "Knock this guy over, knock his, uh, knock his uh, jewels off." I think they were diamonds. Uh, in the middle of George Street, actually, and Neddy Smith's getaway car was was a police car. <laughs> a police car was the getaway car. <laughs> they dropped him. They dropped him at the front of Parliament House, and. Uh, And then they drove back to the scene to to be the investigators. And Smith went off for a Chinese meal for lunch. Life must have been very
1: sweet for a criminal like Nettie Smith under those circumstances where he has the green light to commit an armed robbery and has a police car as a getaway in the middle of Sydney, Jack.
0: Well... In a way, but uh, there is a magnificent line in, in Blue Murder where, um, uh, where Smith, Smith is told he's going to be given the green light and he asks, oh, yeah, what happened to the, what happened to the last one who had it? And he said, oh, we shot them all, mate. Uh, and so he would have realised that if push came to shove, if it came to some sort of exposure of the relationship with Smith, then Smith would end up deep underneath the sand dunes in botany or, uh, or, or slung off a boat somewhere. What were Roger Rogerson's links with the heroin trade in Melbourne? Well, he was charged with uh, supply heroin uh, and ultimately acquitted. He had developed a, a relationship with a, a particularly unpleasant criminal by the name of Dennis Allen, known in, amongst police and criminals as Mr Death uh, due to his um, propensity for killing people often around at his own house. And the stories about him in this Richmond house—he was—he was—he was part of the the Pettingill clan. He, he was Kath Pettingill's eldest son. Really unpleasant piece of work. And uh, he had, uh, well, a, a woman came forward and gave evidence against Rogerson, saying that she had paid him a hundred thousand dollars, and he in turn had given her uh, a kilogram of heroin, which he had pinched from the the evidence locker at police headquarters at Colley Street. And um, the, the matter went to court and Rogerson was ultimately acquitted. But a, a, around about the same time, he was found stashing uh, $110,000 in two separate bank accounts under false names. That's when he really came under intense criminal investigation.
1: So just to be clear, he, it was being but, alleged at that time that Roger Rogerson was pinching heroin from the evidence locker at police headquarters in Sydney handing it over to a courier who took it down to Melbourne to be sold in Melbourne by a notorious killer and
0: heroin dealer down there, Jack. Yes, that's right. But that's not his only source of heroin. I mean, he and another police officer had conspired to bring in huge amounts of heroin from Thailand initially and then the plane would land in Papua New Guinea and, and then be flown into northern Australia there under under the radar f- of customs and, uh, and move it around that way. Now, they got pulled up for that, that they had conspired to bring in huge amounts of heroin that uh, Rogerson and Duff considered was part of their retirement fund. Then there
1: was a notorious incident where a New South Wales police officer named Michael Drury, who'd been working in Victoria as an undercover cop, was shot while standing near his window of his suburban home in Sydney shot several times and nearly killed. It was later discovered that this had been part of a conspiracy organised by a Melbourne heroin dealer whom Drury was going to give evidence against. This heroin dealer, Alan Williams, had gone to Roger Rogerson and Christopher Dale Flannery to have this police officer assassinated. Was this the event that really finally was the undoing of Roger
0: Rogerson within his own police force? Well, it was so brazen and, and it was it was so, so contrary to, to the rules of corrupt New South Wales Police Force, that it wasn't believed at first. Williams was the drug dealer uh, who had uh, provided heroin directly to Mick Drury. Williams fled the scene, but ultimately he was arrested and he was brought before the courts, and and in a committal hearing, Drury gave evidence that basically said what had happened, that, that he'd paid money for the heroin and Williams had handed it over. So in the wake of that committal hearing, Rogerson approaches Drury, contacts him and says, look, we'll pay you $40,000 to change your evidence. Now, Drury says, I'm not going to do that. I can't change my evidence. I'm on record of saying precisely what happened at a committal hearing. When it comes to trial, I, I can't just turn around and say it didn't happen. I look ridiculous. Rogerson took umbrage at this and put, Mick Drury down as a person that he would try and square up with at some point. Williams was desperate to stay out of prison. He had a friend uh, he'd spent some time in jail with Christopher Flannery, Christopher Dave Flannery known as Rentakill who was up in Sydney at the time. Williams flew up to Sydney and met with Flannery and Rogerson and they conspired at that time to kill Mick Drury. He was shot twice through the kitchen window of his home while he was playing with his two-year-old daughter, and the curtain rod, the curtain rod that ran along uh, that window, the second bullet deflected off that. It was a hollow point round, so it basically disintegrated before it entered his body, and it was probably the only thing that saved him. Just that that little piece of dowel saved Mick Drury's life. He very seriously wounded, and he was in intensive care for a very, very long time, Uh, but ultimately he put forward this bribe approach and uh, Rogerson was charged ultimately with the the bribery. He wasn't believed at first. Do we know who pulled
1: the trigger against Michael Drury from the Bushes, Jack?
0: Well, it's believed to be Christopher Flannery. Since then, in this Jamie Gow murder trial, Rogerson's co-accused and now co-convicted, Glenn McNamara has come forward and said that Rogerson himself had pulled the trigger, that Flannery was... Uh, suffering uh, amphetamine horrors and shakes and wouldn't be able to go through with it, so he he would fire the gun himself. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. What what I do know is that ultimately when Alan Williams was pulled up, he pleaded guilty to conspiring to murder Michael Drury uh, and he conspired with, he pleaded guilty to conspiring with Roger Caleb Rogerson and Christopher Dale Flannery to murder Mick Drury. Alan Williams went down for conspiracy to murder Mick Drury. How did Rogerson get off, Jack? Well, Rogerson was charged firstly with the bribe, the $40,000, but the jury acquitted. Later, when uh, Williams was finally caught, he pleaded guilty, as I say, and that led to the charge of conspiracy to murder being placed on, on Rogerson. Now, when it came to trial, the judge refused to have the evidence about the bribery heard. And, of course, by then, Christopher Dale Flannery, the hitman, he's gone, he's, he's disappeared, he's dead. And so it's really just convicted heroin dealer against Roger Rogerson, even though Rogerson had left the force in disgrace by this stage. It was basically Williams' word against Rogerson. The force seemed to be changing around him at this time too, Jack, didn't it? Well, he crossed this line. I mean... God only knows what was in his mind when, when he conspired to murder a police officer, but I guess, I guess he just thought he was beyond the reach of anybody by this stage. I know for a fact that in the armed robbery squad, there's a, a very good detective by the name of uh, Brian Harding, and Brian Harding pulled in all his officers one day and, and said to them, OK, that's it, you're either with me or you're with Rogerson and it's time to figure out which side you're on. That There was a real feeling within the police force and within the special squads and within the CIB that Rogerson had behaved disgracefully and that they didn't want to have anything to, further to do with him.
1: Roger Rogerson got sent to jail after he was caught on CCTV and several different banks opening three different accounts in three false names trying to squirrel away over $100,000, Jack. Mm. And he was sent to prison. What was prison like for a
0: man like Roger Rogerson, this killer ex detective? I rang him up in relation to another matter, another police officer in New South Wales getting a very long jail sentence. And I was writing an article about that fellow. And I said to Rogerson, I said, what was it like? You know, what was your first day, first week, first month like in jail? And he told me a. a a few stories, I mean, there was a story he told me, he was held in protective custody, it's certainly at least uh, when he was first jailed. He tells a story of walking through the yard and there's a, there's a cyclone fence between prisoners who are uh, just in, in their normal uh, wings and so forth and he would walk through this area with a couple of guards and just a cyclone fence separating him and other prisoners and that they were spitting at him and abusing him and so forth. But, and I guess that wasn't terribly pleasant for him, but I guess, you know, it gets back to this theory that I think Rogerson is a psychopath. So so when I ask him what he thinks and what he feels, most importantly, what he feels about a particular experience, he really has no answer. He just really doesn't have any great emotional connection with his environment and with himself. So So when I asked him all of these questions you know, he couldn't really give me any examples. I know too, you know, when he was remanded over the Gow murder, he was considered a bit of a VIP in prison and that the young crooks that sort of hang around him and ask that he, you know, sign autographs and take photos and all that sort of stuff with him. I get the impression that jail didn't, bother him all that much i mean he would have hated being incarcerated he would have hated the loss of freedom but in terms of any sort of retributive stuff from other prisoners it didn't happen
1: out of prison he was making money by going on what sounds like the world's worst speaking tour jack with uh, <laughs>
0: the with wild my, larrikin tour i yeah, think yes yeah, that's
1: that's right with mark jacko jackson uh, warwick capper and occasionally chopper reed sort of ducking in and out on stage telling tall stories on on stage, it sounds like he lost all his money, and and it sounds like he wasn't living too high off the hog at that
0: point. Uh, these matters, you know, a murder trial, a bribery trial, he he's uh, incarcerated for perverting the course of justice. These trials cost a lot of money, so he, he may not have had a lot uh, left after he was after he came out of jail the first time, and would have been encouraged to do something like this. He was always on the make. I know for a fact that he was earning money as a a sort of a a $400-a-week retainer for a King's Cross criminal. Now, that wouldn't be an extortion racket. You know, by this stage, Roger's an old man, so he's not going to be threatening people uh, too successfully. So uh, there must have been something he was doing, running odd jobs, uh, running errands, probably criminal errands for this uh, King's Cross gangster. And he was on that retainer for a long time. He also learnt... Uh, welding while he was in jail and when he came out he started a scaffolding business so he had some pretty serious connections with some very colourful types in the construction industry and he, he was actually now paying money in bribes to a local government official who was contracting work out in the western suburbs and he had to pay money to get the work done himself must have annoyed him, but yes, there was a a council worker or a a sort of um, a contractor who was known as Mr Ten Percent out out in the West. And so Roger had to pay the 10%. It must have caused him all manner of frustration because previously he'd been on the receiving end of bribes and now he actually had to pay one. So
1: 2006, you're making the TV series Tough Nuts and Mm -hmm. you bring him in for an interview and you interviewed him and it went very well and afterwards... You went out and had a couple of beers with Roger Rogerson. What was his company like over a beer, Jack?
0: Well, journalism's thirsty work. uh, Yes, it is. uh, Richard. Um, But I did want to take him out. I mean, it wasn't just thanking him for coming along. It really wasn't that. It was, one, I had a first, but two... I wanted to see what he was like away from a camera and away from a microphone, what he might be like. And I did this with a number of other people, you know, quite some of them quite serious criminals, perhaps not quite as serious as Roger. But, and I just wanted to see what he was like away from the lights and the camera and so forth. So we went and had a beer and there was another journalist mate of mine who was there as well. And, and we had a drink for about an hour or so. And um, again, he was charming, funny, uh, witty, he told some, you know, some funny stories and so forth and it was very, very difficult not to like him. Was there a moment when that mask ever slipped? Oh, there was, yeah, and that was the moment, really. There was a, there was a, a senior police officer, uh, now a former police officer, who my journalist mate named, and when Roger heard that name, he said, I haven't seen him around for years. He said, I hope that guy's got cancer. And that's when I thought, oh, my God, you know, th- this guy really is a psychopath. I mean, this guy's really, really dangerous. That moment was just, you know, momentary. It was, a, it was less than a second. But that was the only time he let that mask slip, you know, where he became, he turned from the, the old copper telling old funny cop stories to this rather ruthless individual, ruthless and violent individual who had, you know, so many axes and grudges to bear, but it was momentary, and it was fleeting, and I, I interviewed him again, and and afterwards we were in a studio and we knocked the top off of a, a, a few, a, a few beers then too, but no slipping that time. It was just dear old lovely funny cop stories. It was just that moment that I saw and it really did resonate with me. It really was just oh my god yeah I know exactly who you are now. So we come to 2014 and there he is a
1: man in his 70s conspiring with another former police detective Glenn McNamara to murder ice dealer Jamie Gow. The court found this was a premeditated murder. Was it just about pinching the ice, Jack, were there, was there any suggestion that Roger Rogerson and Glenn, Glenn McNamara were
0: acting on someone else's involvement? Well, there have been some stories. Mean, Jamie Gow was a pretty willing person himself. He was with various triad gangs. There has been a suggestion. This was never presented at court. This is more of a sort of rumour, I would hasten to say. But there was a view within the triads that Jamie Gow may have wanted to turn on them, cooperate with police. And clearly, if that was the case, uh, that could not stand and that Rogerson and McNamara became his assassin for that for that reason. I've seen the CCTV footage, which Rogerson
1: didn't seem to see or care about, at the uh, lockup storage place where Gow, they murdered Gao. And there's this old man walking out crab-like because his hips and his knees are no good with mm. a bucket the bucket that he dips down the gully trap of uh, whatever bloody mess he's just been involved in in cleaning up.
0: Well, the early story was that the room was covered in plastic when Gow arrived there, but I don't think that's true. Um, But certainly uh, McNamara and Rogerson, it was their intent to lure him into that place and kill him. So he was shot twice in the chest. Uh, It was a small-caliber weapon, Richard, and without wanting to get into the uh, technicalities of this too much... That's not going to leave a large wound mark, no particular, no no big exit wound, for example, that can spray a lot of blood and matter around the walls and what have you. So, uh, and again, that that is more sort of compelling evidence to suggest that this was an arranged murder uh, and that a small calibre weapon was used in order to uh, reduce the mess. How did they
1: manage to get him into Glen McNamara's boat
0: well, a couple of, well, McNamara's in his fifties, but Rogerson's a lot older. And as you say, you know, he's hobbling around with a knee and and hip injuries and what have you. And they they couldn't they couldn't lift his body. Gow's a pretty big guy and heavy, I suppose, be at eighty kilos. And they couldn't get him into the boat, so they had to put him back in the car and and then drive around to Bunnings and hire a block and tackle and get him into the boat that way. Look, I know a lot of people have spoken about this, but people who knew him and served with him in the police force, and they say, we just can't believe that he could have been this really cunning, shrewd, manipulative fellow, could make so many mistakes. But my own theory on this is that he and McNamara, they just didn't think the body would be found. I mean, they thought that body would... And it would sink to the bottom of the ocean and that would be the end of it. And even if there was this raft of CCTV footage and no body, no conviction, that's the way it generally works. They might have thought they were in a bit of strife, but if Gao's body hadn't been found, and it was something of a fluke that it was, passing fishing trawler, spotted the blue tarpaulin that he'd been wrapped in. Um, if uh, If they hadn't found the body, then... I doubt that they'd be convicted.
1: The performance of the New South Wales police in pursuing the uh, case against Rogerson and McNamara in this case was, uh, you know, I've seen the video evidence. It's professional. It's effective. It's very transparent. Everything's on video so you can see exactly what's going on. No one's making prejudicial comments before they examine the evidence. It's very, very methodical and transparent. It's just... And as I was watching this take place, Jack, on these videos, the police videos, you can't help but be struck by the difference in police methods today
0: compared to Roger Rogerson's time. It's all changed. And for the better, uh, very much for the better. It was a terrible, terrible time. And and Australians really have to understand. It's not just New South Wales, although New South Wales definitely was the worst. Up in Queensland, the police force became a sort of paramilitary wing of the National Party. These are really dangerous things. If we, if we appreciate and... Uh, if we appreciate the great gift of democracy that we have, this is a great challenge to it. The policing, if it's corrupt, if it's endemically corrupt, you know, you and I and anybody else can be pulled off the street, charged with a serious crime that we didn't commit, loaded up with a bunch of evidence, and Rogerson was a, was a, a champion at the verbal, which means he'd sit down a criminal... Uh, they'd just sit let him sit in an interview room while he'd type up his confession and the person would look at this i'm not going to sign that and they'd present it it would it, you were able to present this to a court he said oh the the prisoner confessed to the murder confessed to the armed robbery and people would go away for very long periods of time completely innocent and that was that was the police force of of rogerson's era i mean Queensland's had significant problems. There have been significant problems in Western Australia and in Victoria too. So, you know, if you have these corrupt police forces never mind what Alan Jones thinks it means innocent people go away go go away to jail for crimes they didn't commit Uh, and it means they can stand over police can stand over political systems. Um, They are a force unto themselves I mean they are a paramilitary wing and of the whole system. And if they misbehave, you know, we all suffer.
1: At the end of Blue Murder, that brilliant drama series with Richard Roxburgh playing Roger Rogerson, he confronts Nettie Smith just before Nettie is about to be picked up finally in this house that Nettie's holed up in. And he makes this great speech, and it's a testament to Ian David's brilliant writing, I think, Jack, in this case. Roger Rogerson makes this speech, which goes to the heart of the kind of the ethos that he was operating under. Do you remember Chow Hayes, Net, He'd shot Bobby Lee five times in the Zigfield Club. In, in front of 50 people, he pulls out his forty-five and plugs him and walks off with his wife and his mate. When Ray Kelly caught up with him, he said, he said, Chow, I know you did it, and I, and I will tell as many lies as I can to convict you, and you will tell as many lies as you can to beat it. Is that, is that square? and then he booked him. Chow thought the law didn't apply to him, but it did. The law was Ray Kelly. In the end, you guys don't count. That's the philosophy. Mm. we the law. In the end, you crooks, you don't count. You have a portrait of Chow Hayes over your desk painted by Bill Leek. What do you, what do you sure. think when you look at that picture,
0: Jack? <laughs> you, get, you, get, you you sometimes feel a little icy cold when, when Chow looks down at you because he knocked off quite a lot of people. He this black-eyed stare and the cigarette wafting up. He had these run-ins with Ray Kelly. I mean, Ray Kelly became famous over, over Chow Hayes and Chow Hayes learned every trick in the book. If you didn't like someone, if they wouldn't play ball, if they wouldn't pay a bribe, then you put them away. You know, it's a terrible, terrible history we've got in policing in this country Uh, and we need to understand it so we don't have it in future. So we do have this, you know, not always perfect but highly professional police force that serve us. I mean, that's what they've got an oath to do, serve us. All Roger Rogerson did was serve himself. Great to speak with you, Jack, and thank you so much. Thank you, Richard.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.